We are in the book of First Peter and uh, this summer, and today's the final message in the book of First Peter. And um, I want you to know it's been a tremendous journey for me personally these last eight weeks. And um, it's been a reminder uh, to me about the times in which we live. I don't know that there could be a timelier book in all of the New Testament than First Peter, <laughs> because it's written to a church that in many ways is in similar places as uh, we find ourselves today, maybe in the American church. They weren't being killed for their faith, and uh, they weren't being tortured. They weren't being physically persecuted, but they were a minority. They were being pushed to the edges of society. They were uh, outcasts, ridiculed, uh, discriminated against. Uh, Their word didn't count for anything. Their opinion didn't matter. And it was simply because they were followers of Christ. They didn't face losing their lives day to day, but uh, they did face losing out every day. And it's interesting to note that in just a few years before outright persecution is when they received this letter. Most scholars believe 1 Peter was written sometime between 62-64 A.D. Uh, During that time, the church was kind of that anti-establishment, not going with the cultural flow kind of group. Uh, They didn't buy into the emperor, the Roman emperor's uh, king of all, that we ought to revere him at all costs. They were nonconformists. They were targets of ridicule and blame. But something happened. Something happened in the summer of 64. There was this great fire in Rome. How many of you know history, right? There was this great fire that swept through Rome during the rule of Nero. And word started spreading that uh, Nero set this fire for his own entertainment. And, uh, but who do you think Nero turned and blamed for the fire? Yeah. In fact, the Roman historian Tacitus wrote this just a few years later. Therefore, to stop the rumor that he had set Rome on fire, Emperor Nero, falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures, the persons commonly called Christians, who were generally hated. In their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport, for they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and worried to death by dogs and na- or nailed to crosses or set fire to... And when the day waned, burned to serve for the evening lights. Now, this was just a few years, maybe months, after the church received this epistle, 1 Peter. And it was meant to prepare the church to not only be faithful to Christ, but to even shine bright in the increasing and growing darkness of the day. The suffering... Listen, the suffering of the church can produce great opportunities for the gospel. The suffering of the church can produce great opportunities for the gospel. Amen, right? That's about as into it as the first service was on that passage there. It's true because when the, when the church comes under fire and it continues to express the joyful life of Christ and it continues to function as the scriptures call it to function, it becomes brighter and there's an opportunity for the gospel that may not be present in more friendly circumstances. And as we get to the last chapter of 1 Peter, he gets personal with people that he deeply loves here. He wants them to know 
that they are, in spite of what's going on around them, they are to continue honoring the Word of God, continue being the church. Don't just scatter. Don't just say the sky is falling and run out. He says, no, keep your community. Keep your leadership. Keep teaching the Word. Keep living grace. Keep expressing the truth into the culture. In 1 Peter 5, the first part of it starts with an address to leadership. Let me read the first four verses. It says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. No doubt there is a weight of responsibility upon elders of the church. Wouldn't you agree? There is a weight of responsibility to understand the leadership of Christ and what He wants to do in the church and to be close to Him in such a way that they may receive from Him the instruction in which guides their decisions, helps them know how to lead. It's a glorious calling to share the life of Christ with those under your care. I want you to see the instructions very specifically. They were in that list there. Let me give you the list again. First of all, elders, shepherd the flock. Shepherd the flock to bind up their wounds. Correct those that begin to wander spiritually. Protect from the infiltration of the enemy. Shepherd. Number two, exercise oversight. Simply just means to handle things. Step up to the plate. Lead. Don't let things fester and wander. And Step up and lead. Number three, serve voluntarily as God wills. Don't accept the calling begrudgingly. And every once in a while we'll approach somebody to be on the elder board and we get a response something like this. Well, have you tried everybody else? We'd really like to ask you. Really? All right. I guess so. That's begrudgingly, right? You serve voluntarily. You serve as the call of God on your life. It's not about you. It's about the ministry that God and His Holy Spirit want to do through your life. You serve of your own free will in response to the call of God on you. It's not as if someone is making you. Four, do not enrich yourself. Don't use the place of authority for personal gain of any kind. And fifth, don't abuse your authority. It says don't lord it over. Lead from a place of humility, service. And six, be spiritual examples to the church. Live in such a way that others can see what a humble follower of Christ really is, li- really is like. You know, I'm so grateful that I serve with a team of elders in this church that are doing all they can to let Christ do these things in them. To lead well, to handle things, to be examples, to shepherd and care for people. Elders have tremendous spiritual responsibility, and yet they also have great spiritual reward. Great spiritual reward. You know, when I think about leadership in the church, and we see it throughout uh, 
especially uh, in Titus, in First Timothy, and here in Peter. You think about this whole idea of biblical oversight, biblical shepherding, spiritual oversight. You think about it in the cultural context in which we find ourselves today. Well, let me ask you, are people today just naturally suspicious of leadership? Be it in our country, be it at your corporations? Are people suspicious of church leadership sometimes? I think it has worked its way into the church. No one seems to want people over them, shepherding them. It's, it's yet something that Peter is instructing the church. And even in the midst of the cultural turmoil, the church is still the place where leaders, elders, are caring for the flock that allow themselves to be cared for, nurtured, brought along. Look at verse 5. It says this, You younger men, likewise be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He says younger men are to be subject to the elders. You know, interesting though. You know what the word younger here means? You know, we would naturally think of it as what? Age. So if you're an older person, hey, I'm off the hook here, right? <laughs> it doesn't really mean that. It's not really talking about age. It's the, the word younger here means actually more recent or newer. And so it's really anybody who is more recent or newer in the faith, in their journey, to allow themselves to be subject to the nurture, the discipleship, the leadership of the church. And there's this mutual humility toward one another. You know, I thought about this and I thought, you know, any elder, I'm just thankful that we don't have this situation, but any elder who ever gets on a power trip or thinks that their position is about them, they're just not being humble. And any person in the church who just says, well, I just, I'm not going to be subject to them. I'm not going to go along with the decisions that they make. And, well, they're not being humble. And it's, it's essential that humility just wash over the church. It's humility as it washes over you and it washes over the leadership and it washes over teachers. And we're mutually subject to one another. and We're able to see the life of Christ be shared one with another. What it does is it allows the world to see the kingdom of God and how it operates. Does the world operate in humility? No, the world operates and I got to be better than you. I got to put you down so I can be up. And that's not to be among us. And so humility is the, is the value we embrace. You know, he says that God stands opposed. God stands opposed to the proud. He's quoting Proverbs when he says this. He says that God gives grace to the humble. God's with the humble. God's against the proud. Powerful statement. I mean, every time I see pride well up in me, I think, oh no. There's a lot more to this than I think. I better keep that pride in check and come back to the Lord and fall before Him in brokenness and say, Lord, wash me in humility. As a church, here's the point. We are to wear humility. We're to clothe ourselves. To wear it. The verb here of wearing humility is, is like... 
tying on an apron, tying on humility, wearing it. Humility is, is power because it, it, it shields us from that which would soil us. It's, it completes us. It's the total provision of Christ for our new life. It's the loss of all things for him. It's the understanding that I've lost all things and he's given me all things. So then I'm not proud of my accomplishments. Why? Because they're not my accomplishments. I'm not protective of my things. Because why? They're not my things. I don't have to drop hints. Not that anybody does this, but I don't have to drop hints about stuff that I've done. So that people will recognize me. Because I understand that all good has flowed into my life through the power and the provision of Christ Jesus. Why would I want someone giving me accolades for something that Christ has done through me? Humility. In fact, Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7. He says this, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as if you had, rece- had not received it? It's humility that acknowledges everything that is good comes from Him. And so there's this constant <laughs> turning. Father, here's the situation I face. Father, I need from You for this. Father, if I take matters into my own hands, there's things that are not going to turn out well. Because of that, verse 6 goes on, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Be a sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. What a great passage. He says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Humility is, well, it's really contentment to live under this covering of God's power. A humble person is operating life from under the mighty shelter of their place with God. I mean, I want you to think about the culture wars and we find ourselves in today. Sometimes I hear Christians saying stuff like this. They say, we have to fight. You ever hear that from Christians? We have to fight. We have to get out there. We have to do something to restore America. We have to do something to save America. We have to do something. We've got to speak our mind or we've got to fly our flag. Or we gotta... And I'm not necessarily saying that we ought not do things. But what I am saying is that the humble person living under the mighty hand of God never takes matters into their own hands. We operate from this position, this identity that we have in Him. It means that we are responsive to His call to His Word, to His Scripture, to His hand upon us. He is our protection. He is our decision maker. He's our commander, if you will. And our only fear in life, living under here, our only fear is to not be there, to walk out from under there and think we got a better plan. <laughs> ever, done, ever done that? 
Ever walked out from the mighty protective hand of God because you thought you had a better plan and you kind of made things worse? I've done it. I want to, I want to, get, I want to get the habit of living under this mighty hand and it takes humility. Your way, not my way. Your plan, not my plan. Two words. We've got to trust God. You with me? We've got to trust God. So let me ask you, do you believe God is for you? <laughs> is God in your corner? <laughs> really? <laughs> what if you were a Christian living in 64 AD in the city of Rome? And Nero's launched his wave of attacks. Imagine yourself in Rome back then. You're hiding from the guards out on patrol looking for Christians because night is falling and they need to burn some to get the lights of the streets lit. Would you be firm in your belief that God is for you? God's not against me. I've humbled myself to live under his mighty hand. My life isn't about the here and now. My life is about my destiny. I stand on the promise that he will exalt me in due time, it says. Is that where you would be or would you be doing anything you could to save your skin? <laughs> I contemplate this a lot, folks. And you know why I do? Because I'm a chicken. Anybody here with me? Yeah. When it comes to physical pain, don't count me in. Right? I shouldn't admit that, but it, it, it's, it's, it's one of the goals of my life to avoid as much physical pain as I possibly can. If I can take a pill and not a shot, I'll do it, right? Yeah. And as I've studied First Peter this summer, I've prayed several times, Father, let your grace so fill my life that I know that I know that I know that I've given it all over. I've given it all over. You can do anything. My money, my health, my well-being, my family, my stuff, everything. It's at your disposal. I want to be dead to it. No ownership. And I've I, I come to realize that, are you with me, that we can say that all day long, right? We can say that all day long. But do we have the assurance to know in our spirit that when, when they come for us, or when our name is called, it really it doesn't matter because it's not ours anyway. I've already put that on the altar. I've already given that up. I've already considered myself dead. It reminds me, and I, I bring this illustration up often, but it's that scene in the Band of Brothers, that World War II miniseries. The private is just in deep anguish over the warfare going on. He hears the bullets and he's in this foxhole and everybody's out fighting. He's just down there writhing and screaming and just total abject fear. And later he's having a conversation with his sergeant about why he wasn't there. And he confesses that he was just so scared. And his sergeant says these words to him. He says, you hid in that ditch because you think there's still hope. The only hope you have, Private, is to accept the fact that you're already dead. I don't know of a better way to describe our new life in Christ. All the source of your anxiety, all the source of your worrying is because you're holding out hope for the 
worldly stuff or that life will work out to the way that you want it to work out and stuff starts happening and you start worrying because it's not working out. You're holding out. You haven't considered yourself dead. And it's anxiety that fills our lives when we're holding out hope that life will work out on our terms. I mean, you look at your bank account. It's going down. You get what? Anxious, right? You look at the political choices and the future of our country, and you get what? Anxious. You receive a bad health report, and you get what? Anxious. What am I going to do? And it's caused by holding out hope that life can be on my terms. And that's why it's in this context that verse 7 appears. Look at verse 7. It says, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And the word cast just simply means to cause responsibility for something to be upon somebody else. Transfer. I'm not carrying my anxiety and my fear and my worry anymore. I, I cast it. Let go of it. I put it on somebody else. So my advice to all of us is to just do this. Two words. Let go. Just let go. He cares for you. You know, the meaning of the word cares is that he's thinking of you. He has you on his mind. He has hopes for your life. Like a parent over a child. He wants you to relinquish your anxiety. He's asking for it. And he's saying, stop holding on to your hopes for life on your terms. They're insufficient. They, they, they don't fulfill all that I have for you. Let it go. And maybe you're like me, folks. Uh, anxiety is my reflex to stressful situations. Anybody else like that? Anxiety is my reflex to stressful situations. I mean, when I hear a noise under the hood of my car, <laughs> anxiety, right? When someone gets mad at me or something goes wrong in the church, what? Anxiety. I mean, when a cop pulls up behind me with his lights flashing, anxiety. When one of my kids comes to me and says, Dad, we really need to talk, anxiety. I have learned something in life, and that's this, that there will always be constant opportunities to cast all my anxiety on my father because he loves me, because he loves me. Lord, it's all your money. If you want to give it to the mechanic, that's your business, right? I've even prayed that prayer, okay? Dropping hints with the Lord about things, you know? Doesn't make sense to me, but Lord, this is your church. It's your plan. Lord, my, my kids, they're yours. I... Sometimes I pray, Lord, use this situation as bad as it is. Use it for their good. 
I mean, sometimes don't we parents sometimes do everything that we can to prevent things happening in our kids life. And then they may be the very things that God's going to use to bring them to him. It's letting go. And in the passage, Peter goes on and talks about he enters uh, Satan into the scene. He says Satan is like this prowling lion that wants to eat you. I thought about that. Let me ask you, have you ever been to a zoo and seen a lion in a cage? I mean, not in their habitat, you know, where you're a thousand yards away looking across the big moat, okay? I'm talking about in a room where the lion is caged up and you're maybe six or eight feet away from him. I was at a zoo once and I I saw a lion that close. And I began to wonder to myself, how secure the lock on the cage actually was. <laughs> I wonder if he threw his whole weight against that door. Anxiety, right? I told you it was my reflex. He's right there. <sighs> Is he really not able to get me? He walks back and forth and he's looking at you. And you know what he would do if he could just get out of that cage. He's intimidating you. He may be growling at you. He may be licking his chops. But you really stand there unafraid. And why are you unafraid? Because there's a lock on the door, right? And I want to tell you today, Satan's in a cage. And there's a lock on the door. And it's the cross of Christ. And he can prowl around all he wants. And he can huff and puff all that he wants. But he is locked. And when we enforce the victory of the cross, the cage remains shut and the lock remains secure. So the encouragement of the Scripture is to stand against Satan. And that's what the word means, resist. It comes from two words in Greek. One is anti and one is histami. No, it's not a cold medicine, okay? But... It really means against and stand. And I think that's better than the word resist. The word resist kind of conjures up things like I got to try hard to not do this, not do this, not do this. That's a whole different mentality than stand against. This is the enforcement of the victory that has already been won, that has already locked the cage on our adversary. You can look in his eye with confidence because of the power of the Christ Jesus life in you. And I would contend that the, 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 the battle of our day, as we've walked through this summer series, the battle of our day is not race versus race. You know that, right? The battle of our day is not rich versus poor. The battle of our day is not liberals versus conservatives. The battle of our day is, and it has always been, Satan versus Jesus. And what do you think the status of the conflict is? I can tell you what it is. It is what? Finished. It's over. He's in the cage. And the lock is on it. And so if that's the truth, and it is, where are you living today? What are you holding on to? Is there anxiety? Are you worried about something? Any worriers here today? 
Anybody out there that worries from day to day? I just got to be honest with you, folks. Every once in a while, the, the whole subject of worry and, and anxiety comes up in a passage. And I ask out there, are there any worriers or anybody fretting over anything? And oh, yeah, yeah. That's just the way it is, right? I want you to know something. Worry and anxiety is not the normal part of the Christian experience. Do we get that? It is not to be among you. Why do you worry? Why do you fret? Going back to the book of Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, he takes care of the birds, he takes care of the flowers. What can you possibly have to be worried about? It's not yours anyway. You let it go as a follower of Christ. Your destiny is heaven. It's not here. You let all that go. You're a follower of Christ. The culture is really getting dark. I'm not worried. I'm a follower of Christ. And the only way to do it is to let go. I mean, Abraham put his son on the altar. You can have my son. If that's what you're saying, God, you want my son. Okay. He didn't even keep that. What are you protecting? What are you keeping for yourself? I mean, really, does God have control over your kids? Or are you going to maintain that position just a while longer? <laughs> Anxiety. I mean, does God have a right to your money? Anytime he wants it to do whatever he wants to do with it? Or are you going to keep that under your control? You know what I'm going to say. Anxiety. It's time to stand in the victory of Christ, to humble ourselves under his mighty hand, to consider ourselves dead to everything that is of the world, dead to sin, dead to fame, dead to fortune, dead to worldly dreams, dead to the hopes that life would turn out on our terms. And the body of 1 Peter closes with this, these last two verses. After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, four things, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Those four words, perfect, means to be fully repaired, to made, be made whole, complete. Confirm, to be firmly anchored, set fast. The anchor is down. I'm not going to be moved and swayed about. Strengthen means to be made capable. I don't have to feel like I'm a failure. I don't have to feel like I'm always sinning. I, can't, I don't have to feel like I don't have the strength. He gives us. He will make us capable. Establish means to stand on a strong foundation. He can. He will do these things in our life. I'm here to proclaim today that our faith is a positive faith, folks. It is not a doom and gloom, the sky is falling faith. You got that? It is a positive faith, even in the midst of suffering, persecution, darkness around us. We have this hope in heaven. We have this hope of full redemption in Christ. By the way, we're dead to the world. It doesn't have that hold on us. And so my challenge to each one of us, what is, what's your challenge today? What's, what's that place where the enemy comes and you start to worry and you start to fret? I can't lose that. Lord, no, I can't lose that. Where is it that you start wringing your hands and wonder, where's God? Why didn't he fix this? You might since that there's places in your life where it's like the door has swung open and Satan's on the loose and you're on the run. 
And the best word to describe this, this letting go is freedom. That's just the best word. It's freedom. No matter what happens around me, I am free. Free. And so the, the challenge is to let go. I want you to bow your heads with me. Father, each one of us here knows that uh, there are those seasons of life or events in life or relationships that are so difficult in letting go and turning them into your keep. There's just a measure of us that wants control and a measure of us that doesn't want to face the confrontation or doesn't want to forgive. Or doesn't want to trust. And Father, there may be people here right now today that uh, when I ask about one area of their life where they have a difficulty letting go, that their mind brought an immediate response. Father, I, I just pray in these moments that we would bring those things to you and say, I see what this is doing to me. I see how my Holding on is letting me grow in the anxiousness. Father, as we, as we talked about humility, there may be those that have seen that their words this past week or their activities this past week have raised that pridefulness. And they see it for what it is today. And they say, Lord, I, I don't want that in my life. I want, that, I want to be clothed, to be covered in humility where I don't have to have the recognition or I don't have to get my way or I don't have to make my opinion known. Father, would you in these moments just take those things from us? As we cast them, as we give you responsibility for them. So that we may walk in that joy, that freedom, that settledness in our spirit. Father, we don't know what the future holds. And as we come to the end of this book of 1 Peter, we commit our lives, our church, our city, our nation into your hands. We pray, Father God, that in these days, the church of Jesus Christ would shine bright. We pray that the lives of Christians would be so real and so given over to you that they would see the love that we have for one another and the joy we have in you and be attracted to the very real person of Jesus Christ. Do that in us in these days, Father. And we will forever praise and glorify you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.